G'day and welcome back after a sizable break from recording, uh, for which I apologize if you've been expecting new episodes and they haven't been showing up in your podcast app, then this is hopefully going to be good news for you. Uh, So I had a long break, a lot of work and life stuff getting in the way, uh, but I'm back and I'm hoping to and i have a plan to start releasing more consistent episodes again starting with this one this one's a little bit of a special one in that firstly it's a topic that i'm pretty passionate about but even more so it's episode 150 and that i i'm blown away that we've put out that much content uh, through this podcast. It's pretty incredible. Uh, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of effort, but uh, to everyone that's been involved, to everyone that's listened, uh, a massive heartfelt thank you to you. Um, the second thing I want to address is uh, for a number of, or for a little while, uh, I had been running a, a Patreon for extra content. Um, the subscribers to that were amazing and I can't thank you enough. Just due to life stresses, I, I have addressed this with, with those people already, but just due to life stresses, I, I'm shutting that down or have shut that down uh, a couple months ago. Um, but it means that there is some of the episodes that went out through that that I'm going to release to the public. Um, now, granted, this today will be one of those episodes, uh, there may be some mention of either the Patreon or things that happened many moons ago, uh, and for that you'll have to excuse me. Um, but the the content that I I feel like I'm going to release of those thirty odd episodes that went out through Patreon, uh, I'm only going to put out the ones obviously that I feel like I still have a relevance uh, in the current time. This being one of them. So without further babbling from me let's roll the intro g'day my name's brock cook and welcome to occupied in this podcast we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy we explore the people topics theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible if you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. So many moons ago, I, I did an episode on Occupied about how to talk about occupational therapy. And it re- remains to this day one of the most popular episodes that are out there. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently uh, around a similar topic and it tends to be something that comes up pretty much every April, every OT month, uh, surprisingly, in the States. So I thought I'd revisit this topic and try and delve into a little bit more detail so that we have a better understanding of why it's important that we do gain a good professional identity we do gain confidence in what we do and we are speaking about the profession in a more consistent manner why 
or how do we know this is an issue? I only have to look into a number of OT Facebook groups or Instagram accounts or particularly uh, my favorite meme pages to see that the complaint of no one knows what we do is still prevalent within the profession. Uh, there's been some talk recently about blaming the individual or blaming the profession, and I do want to assure you I'm not here to blame anyone, but I am here to hopefully get you to see that although it's not an individual's fault or it's not the profession's fault, it is also our responsibility to fix it because no one else is going to fix it for us. So I think it's important that we have a look back at sort of how we got here. Uh, and to do that, because we're such a young profession, we need to go right back to the very start. So it's important to know, if you don't already, that OT was birthed from a group of people from a number of different professions. There were psychologists, I'm oh, sorry, psychiatrists, um, nurses, um, and, and a lot of other professions, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but other professions that weren't even health-related, who all saw this sort of gap in the medical model at the time. There were people slipping through the cracks and there was things not being done because it didn't fit within that medical model. The overall sort of consensus was that occupational therapy could be a profession that looked more at the complex uh, interrelation of social, economic, uh, and the biological reasons for a person's uh, dysfunction, rather than just the medical reason. So it was looking outside the medical model to improve health and well-being. Uh, even if they weren't exactly the terms used back in the early 1900s. There was early on, uh, and I believe he was one of the founding people of AOTA, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but they came up with four sort of core points for what would become occupational therapy. Uh, and those points were that occupation has a positive effect on health and well-being. That occupation creates structure and organizes time. That occupation brings meaning to life culturally and personally. Occupations are individual. People value different occupations. The weird thing about that, not the weird thing, the thing that I actually really like about that is even though that was written many moons ago, uh, and the profession has gone through a number of different phases. The phase that we're coming back to for the last 15, 20 years, this fits perfectly. I I can't think of a, a really good sort of occupation-based practice or that that doesn't fit within these four points. But since that was written before or like after that was written um, we went through a phase uh, around world war ii where based on the huge number of injured vets uh, and some criticism uh, from the medical model professions the medical model health system uh, ot's 
adopted more of a reductionist philosophy. We kind of merged, we assimilated more with that medical model. And I think it was more to do with uh, just needing more hands to do what they were doing. Um, OT at that point in time, very small, a very small percentage. Um, And we're thinking sort of David and Goliath type sort of odds. But we essentially, it was mob mentality in a way. Uh, we the, the, the dominant culture was the medical model culture and us looking for validation and looking to, I guess, kind of cement our identity, even though we were still kind of forming our own identity and didn't really know what that was. We still are to a degree. Um, we, we tended to, or the profession itself, tended to move into that reductionist philosophy where a lot of uh, practical skills were adopted and, and grown, especially around um, the areas of physical rehab um, and assistive technology, etc. But we tended to drift away from our core philosophy, which was the use of occupation as a therapy. This we there's a number in in, in different clinical settings. There is still a number of different phases, but the main sort of ones were were that we started off being very occupation based. We moved into a more reductionist um, role, a more reductionist framework around the sort of late forties, fifties. And then it really wasn't any. It really wasn't until uh, occupational science was coined and was was formally formed in 1989, and then rolled out through the early 90s. That the profession had a good hard look at itself and started to move back towards its roots. Now I can't imagine uh, how big a shift that would have been, and the the time and effort that it would have taken to shift our whole profession, even though, yes, in the 90s, the, get, the profession would have been much smaller population-wise than it was than it is right now. But you're really trying to steer a huge ship with what essentially was a, a handful of therapists that were driving that movement so i think whether you are in camp occupational science or not a a ridiculously impressive feat um either way the underlying philosophy of ot evolved from being more of a diversion from illness which it kind of had evolved into during that reductionist period. Uh, it became more of a diversional thing as opposed to uh, looking at enablement through the use of occupation. So that's how we kind of got here. We're still in that transition phase. We've still got therapists that qualified and worked. We've still got uh, like during that reductionist period, yes, they may be in the academic roles, they may be retired, they still, the one thing I've learned about OTs is even in retirement, they still seem to 
they love the profession enough that they still uh, are usually quite involved, which I think is says amazing things about the profession itself, which is which is wicked. But there's still that influence. A lot of the theories and the textbooks that we don't even think twice about using were developed during that reductionist uh, time period. And yes, some of the newer ones may have been developed through the sort of transition period of the 90s, but there's still that flavor. I've talked a lot on Occupied about uh, cultural transitions, and I'm thinking, and again, completely unrelated to the topic, but the idea of uh, ongoing cultural influence in my episodes with Tirupa and Jody around the colonization of Australian healthcare system. And yes, in that example, yes, like I'm not trying to colonize uh, the work that I'm doing, but I'm working in a system that has been influenced for many, many years quite often without me really putting any thought into the fact that, hey, wait a minute, maybe this isn't working for everyone involved. The, 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 the profession is the same. We are enculturated into the workplace that we go into. And if that workplace is heavily influenced by a, well, now very old reductionist paradigm, then you're going to be, as a new grad, enculturated into that. One of the reasons that I believe that we need to talk about OT more uh, or better is in order to change this now, we need to try and complete this transition uh, over to our very occupation-based, back to our roots, our core assumptions, back to those four points that I, I spoke about earlier, that occupation has a positive effect on health and well-being, it creates structure and organizes time, brings meaning to life culturally and personally, and it's individual. People value different occupations. The reason we need to get back to that, we need to complete the transition back to that, is at the present if we picture it, and I don't have the exact numbers, but if we picture that there's 50% of the profession, and that's probably a bit overkill, but 50% of the profession working in a very sort of reductionist paradigm still and 50% working uh, from uh, the more widely promoted occupation-based paradigm, how are those two kind of diametrically opposing philosophies going to form one single cohesive professional identity um you think about the recent u.s elections like there was so much turmoil because there was two parties that had such a an opposing view an opposing philosophy on one what it was to be an american uh and two the well the system just pretty much everything wasn't really a number of things it was pretty much everything and that kind of you, you saw the turmoil that that created of not being able to form this cohesive identity of hey this is america this is our system this is etc etc same thing any any opposing views people struggle to 
uh, be able to negotiate that middle ground for an identity. Um, I can't remember who said it, but the, one of my favorite quotes, I think it might have been Einstein actually, uh, talked about the true measure of intelligence being able to hold two opposing views uh, without reacting. That's a side note. But anyway, so why do we want to talk about OT? So I come from a very socially social constructionist lens in that I believe that words form meaning. Uh, words create relationship. Words create uh, our beliefs and shape our lenses that we look through. One of the issues with not having a, co- a cohesive, a strong professional identity is that we're kind of all doing our own thing and when someone goes, oh, what's OT? Everyone's got their own idea. Everyone's working from their own little silo. Everyone's looking at their own, the profession through their own little lens. And we're looking when we when we get asked that question, it's us as professionals, as OTs, looking in, inward at the profession and going, "Hey, well, what exactly are you?" And through my lens, you're this, and through Joe Blow's lens, you might look slightly different, and they're going to explain it differently. There's no, there's no way to really change that from the inside so that when everyone looks in we're all reading off the same page what we need to do is sort of get a groundswell of people who are confident and understand what the profession is and the only way that we're going to know that people understand what the profession is is if they're talking about it so we can go hey that person there is describing the profession exactly the same as i do one interesting thing that I did find today, actually, while I was doing a little prep work for this episode, was for for many moons, um, I've used an elevator talk uh, for the for describing the profession. When someone asks me what is OT, um, I start by setting the expectation of what occupation is. Because one of the biggest complaints I see from therapists is there's no point because people don't understand occupation or people think occupation means something else. Um, And my argument has always been, well, it it means what we think it means or has meant that for a lot longer than it's meant to be a, a job or employment. So, And people understand when we describe it the way we look at it pretty easily i've never had anyone go oh yeah that doesn't make any sense so the definition that i've used quite often is when as ot's when we're looking at what we call occupation we're looking at anything any activity that you do anything that you're engaged in that occupies your time and for different age groups that's going to be different things for kids it's going to be play for elderly people it might be reminiscing in family time for Middle-aged people, it could be work, holidays, growing a family, whatever it is. Uh, And then we would then look at anything that then stops you 
from engaging in those things. We work with you to come up with creative and sustainable ways to get back to occupying your time with the things that you want to do and need to do. So my focus when I when I talk about occupation has always been very much on the time. And I, it always shocked me when I put out that, that first episode, Mail, probably two years ago now, uh, that a lot of people were like, oh, that's really novel, that's new. And I was just like, oh, I don't really know if it is. The interesting thing that I found today is that the American OT Association has uh, the Occupational Therapy Practice Framework, which I know I've heard many American therapists, American students uh, mainly talk about having to study um, the OTPF in the textbook associated with that, which according to this reference is the OTPF or Occupational Therapy Framework Domain and Process 3rd Edition uh, from 2014, I believe. There's a, a, a sentence in there that kind of struck me and it was talking about occupations and it says an occupation is defined as defined as any type of meaningful activity in which one engages in order to occupy in quotes one's time so i don't fully understand why the time aspect of my definition was sort of novel but it also supports that that the AOTA is trying to change that consistent message from the inside using our metaphor from before so that if we if if you are using the occupational therapy practice framework that's your consistent that's what you should be looking at for your whole process but right from the point of defining what occupation is now if we're all defining occupation the same way it doesn't matter what practice area you're in if you think about your practice area and you read over that definition, an occupation is defined as any type of meaningful activity in which one engages in order to occupy one's time. Any practice area, think of your practice area, that definition fits. If that definition doesn't fit to your practice area or one that you're thinking of, a slightly different issue and we may need to have a look at that. But that's, that's what the profession is. That's the the core assumption is that that anything that fits under that definition has a positive effect on health and well-being, creates structure and organizes time, brings meaning to life culturally and personally, and is individual. So people value different different things, different ones. So any type of meaningful activity for an individual, again, this sets us up, just this definition sets us up perfectly in how we should be looking at ourselves within a clinical practice. We're looking at the individuals, what they find, what occupies their time for starters, and the meaningful activity. The occupation is what brings that meaning to their life, culturally and personally. So it sets us up as very much the the almost in a consultative role. We're not in the center of this. It puts the person right at the center of our practice just by definition, how it's worded. It's perfect. I mean, it's obviously not perfect, perfect, but it's 
a really, really good starting point for us to start considering where we fit, how we define occupation. If everyone starts talking about occupation uh, and defining OT in a fairly similar, I'm not saying you have to use this, you can use that exact definition if you like, um, or any variation of it, or you can use your own as long as it's sort of highlighting the same points. Uh, If everyone is relatively consistent, that language then starts forming or it starts shaping your lens, your view looking back at the profession. It starts shaping your lens. When everyone is shaping their lens and those lenses start to be semi-consistent, we start reshaping the culture of the profession because that's what culture is. Culture is those shared values and beliefs. So if we are using our own language and that language is spreading, people are resonating with it, people are using it, Um, our clients start defining occupational therapy to other people in the same way that we have, that almost, I guess you describe it nowadays as going viral, that word of mouth, that spread of information, that helps shape our culture. And once that sort of groundswell happens, it's kind of like a snowball effect in that the more people doing it sort of exponentially means that even more people are going to start doing it. We do will we will get that mob mentality um, effect, so to speak. But that's how we can groundswell from the from the the grassroots, from you guys, the people on the ground working directly with clients. That's how you can help change the profession because when everyone's thinking the same, that becomes a culture and that becomes a consistent professional identity. With that professional identity comes confidence in being able to stand up for what we are, who we are, what we do, and where we work. Now, yes, there are systems in place that do not align with all of that, those things that I just listed. But we, as individuals, don't have a lot of control over the external factors of the system. We, uh, it's been described as a very transactional model. But we are actually a part of this profession. We are a part of the culture. You are a part of the system of occupational therapy that makes up occupational therapy. You and your influence over the therapists and the clients around you have the power to start that snowball. We have that power to start changing minds, changing opinions and bringing the profession closer and tighter than it has been in a hundred years. Bringing OT back to its roots. Bringing OT back to being a very tight-knit, consistent, but still very broad uh, in where we work, 
I think that's the other thing is that by doing this, we're not losing anything. We're not losing any opportunities for places that we work. We are simply taking back our power and our identity as therapists. And I think that's really important. The other aspect of language is obviously that there are a lot of occupational uh, therapy-specific terminologies and words. Um, you know, we look at the occupational deprivation, occupational apartheid, occupational justice, etc. I would see branching out into some of those as almost secondary to being able to define the the profession itself. Uh, a lot of those terminologies help bolster uh, confidence in the profession from within the profession. But there's not a lot of times that I've seen that those terminologies are used outside of the profession, which is an interesting point in itself and probably the topic for a whole nother podcast um, about whether or not we should be using uh, those terms when there are equivalent terms outside of the profession that we might be able to tap into and use anyway. But we'll leave that for another time. For now, I challenge you to come up with your elevator speech. Let me know. You can message me through Patreon. You can tag me on Instagram. Uh, I know OT for Life is running a uh, a, a little campaign throughout OT month this year in 2021 uh, asking people what their elevator speech is and I'm going to send her mine I'm going to put mine up on Instagram I will uh, tag it feel free to have a look at it I encourage you to tag yours tag me, tag OT for life uh, and let's start trying to build a more cohesive culture within occupational therapy. So yes, it's no one individual or no profession to blame, but it 100% is still our responsibility to fix it because if we don't, no one else is going to do it for us. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied. Thank you.